good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm David Carrasco of the Harvard Divinity School and the Department of Anthropology. And on behalf of the Dean's Office, um, I'm very pleased to, to welcome you to this afternoon's presentation by Eliza Griswold. Um, I thank the Dean uh, for coming out today and uh, asking me to do the introduction. So, <laughs> I have my way. <laughs> so I, I have my introductions in two parts. So first, I'm just going to read uh, the kind of blurb that uh, gets collected around uh, kind of creative work that Eliza Griswold has done, and then I'm going to say a few personal words uh, of my impressions uh, uh, of her when she was my student at Princeton and. Uh, what she has become, become now. So uh, Eliza Griswold is a, is a journalist and a poet. So she's a, a person who loves language and struggles with language and turns language into different kinds of meanings. Her poetry and reportage have, have appeared in big time, big time places. Uh, uh, the New York Times, The New Yorker, and The Atlantic. Uh, I subscribe to all of them, but have never appeared in any of them. <laughs> uh, she's held fellowships at Harvard, where she's currently the Berggren Fellow at HDS, and also at the New America Foundation. Uh, her first nonfiction book, and I want to sort of ask you to pay attention to the title of, of her writings, The Tenth Parallel, Dispatches from the fault line between Christianity and Islam. It was awarded the Anthony J. Lucas Prize and was a New York Times bestseller. Wow. I read those books, but I haven't <laughs> had a bestseller. In 2011, she published an investigative report in the New York Times Magazine that investigated the impacts of fracking on neighboring communities in Appalachia. Uh, this essay serves as a basis for her forth forthcoming book entitled Amity and Prosperity, for which she was awarded the Guggenheim Fellowship in 2012. Again, I've applied for Guggenheim <laughs> Fellowships, but never gotten one. It shows you where I'm going with this. Her collection of reportage and translations of Afghan poet, folk poetry entitled, I Am the Beggar of the World, was published in 2014, and in 2015 won the Penn Award for Poetry in Translation. She's currently at work on her second volume of poems, and next year will serve as the Distinguished Writer-in-Residence at NYU with Taneshi Coates. Heshi Coates. Now, personally, you know, I first became aware of Eliza Griswold. I became aware of her presence in uh, courses at Princeton University where I taught, where she was an undergraduate. And there was this student who showed up, usually sat toward the front, with very bright eyes. All <laughs> <laughs> who signal, uh, signaled, you know, a unique curiosity, a kind of a hunger to learn. Um, and I had the impression of, of someone who was taking it all in, but from a different angle than most of the students there. Uh, in the courses, she was engaged with Native American religions, Latin American religions, religions of the world, 
And one of the things that she seemed very interested in at the time was comparative perspectives. Um, and, um, you know, in her papers, I remember she played with interpretive language. She, she was fascinated and liked words that were coming out of my own theoretical background. She liked, uh, she liked liminality. Uh, she liked sacred and profane. She liked axis mundi. Um, she liked borderlands. Uh, she liked city. Uh, she liked words like peripheries. Uh, and um, it was clear that she, you know, she found these kind of like, you know, appearances to her. They were appearing to her. And she wanted to know what was behind those appearances. And I saw in her at the time uh, an enormous potentiality. Now, uh, let me use a phrase that is often used, and it, sometimes it's sincere and sometimes it's, it's insincere. Um, uh, but before you judge my use of it, I, I want to let me explain what I mean. That's the phrase, a student who has surpassed a teacher. Now, uh, in this case, there's some truth to it, and let me tell you why. Um, because she heard lectures I gave in ways that I didn't necessarily mean them. <laughs> that is, she would hear things that were said um, uh, that I wasn't necessarily aware of myself at the time. Um, that is, she heard potential meanings in these theoretical approaches. She heard potential meanings in some of the empirical stuff that was being presented. Um, and when she would come and talk to me, uh, she would say, well, I was thinking this, and I'd pretend like, well, I was thinking that too. <laughs> uh, because it was fresh, and it was, it was really cool. Um, and that is, what I'm saying is that she saw things that were kind of embedded in things that needed to be brought to light. Um, and another way of saying this is I feel that, uh, that what has happened to her in her work, in her life, is that her potential reached into the potentials of meanings of words and ideas and the potentials of human beings. And some of these potentials other people just hadn't seen. And some of these potentials of human beings and meanings and words other people didn't want them to be seen uh, in some of these women that she has spent time with and some of these communities that she has spent time with. That is, there's a sense of crossing boundaries that have real blockages in them. Um, uh, they're not seen by others, but they're crying out to be known and to be understood. And if you just look at some of the titles again, the actual article about the, the one in Pennsylvania is called The Fracturing of Pennsylvania. The Fracturing of Pennsylvania. And in that, she's not just talking about the land. She's talking about the people of Pennsylvania being fractured. Um, the Kurds take a city. That whole question of the city, of the Axis Mundi, of a center is important. Uh, wide awake field poems. Wide awake field poems. She's wide awake. Maybe even when she's dreaming and sleeping sometimes. The tenth parallel. The tenth parallel. That line, that peripheral line that both divides and unites people. So, in these ways, she has surpassed her teacher. 
And of course, that's what we want as teachers. We want things that we say and have learned to be taken up and taken in realms that we, we just didn't imagine. Uh, in fact, I, I didn't imagine we'd necessarily be here together, but we are. Please welcome Eliza. <laughs> so delighted to be here with you guys and just what a huge privilege and just to speak informally a little bit about what this year has been like and and to express some gratitude I am so grateful Dean Hempton I can't really can't thank you and Luann enough from going sitting in your living room to here now this what I really and now since we're a nice intimate group I can kind of change registers and be a little bit more informal and talk about really what brought me here which is the ideas that I had been working with, really, from being in Professor Carrasco's classes. Hello. <laughs> my own, I'm wondering where my own is wandering at this moment. Um, through, for the next 15 years, really these ideas of hierophany, where are the spaces where sacred and secular meet? What happens in liminal space? Why is it so dangerous? Why don't we as a culture in, invite um, our young to go out to the edges anymore, right? We are so center-based, we are so fearful of what the edge might be, and by not allowing that process through a coming-of-age ritual or other means, we, we close down our creative imagination. And for me, the role of the spirit is rooted in that creative imagination. And after, after you know, Really from September 11th forward, I have just been out there hitting the pavement, learning about other people, and I see my work largely as a form of translation no matter what I'm doing because I'm gathering somebody's experience, their perspective of, of something that's happened, and I'm bringing it back to another audience. Um, and so what I was hoping for this year was to have a quiet year of reflection rooted in reading the Vedas uh, with Frank Clooney and writing poems. Just really re retreat a bit and also deepening. I can feel, I'll be totally frank, I can feel the ways in which my will has worked itself as a muscle are, Tillich might say, I, I'm headed toward idolatrous concerns. Like, I need to clean this stuff up, right? And I know that there is space here to do that. So. Because of the, so set out this fall, beginning to read the Vedas, I needed to finish this fracking book, but that, that was gonna be okay. And just to read poems, and then like everybody else, the elections happened. Um, and what happened is, I have spent the last six years in Appalachia, in a community that's really wounded um, by more than a century of resource extraction. So beginning with timber, then through coal, uh, then natural gas. And it was actually the day after the election I was up here, I got to sit in on a Peter Sachs incredible class on Yates. Just that, again, what, how do we root beyond the daily reporting? What matters? Where is meaning in a moment like this? Incredible. And then that evening, got to go to David's class to talk a little bit about how to make sense of what had happened. And there was a wonderful student there. And my first impulse after the election was do something. I mean, all of ours was. Um, so I called this smart Muslim American friend of mine. And we decided what we'd do is kind of create this Muslim American story core where we were going to take kids, Muslim American kids, first, second generation, could be anybody, into schools in red states. 
um, which I was calling red schools and no one liked that. So, <laughs> so I went to David's class to talk about, you know, to, to talk anyway, but started asking the students what they thought. And one young woman said, you know, she, I think she's from the Cumberland Plateau. And she said, I am from these communities. And before anybody comes in and tells us anything, we need to be listened to, right? And she, she set me on this course of what happens next, right? And so I got, had the privilege of spending some time this spring in a place called the Appalachian Institute, which is at the uh, West Virginia Jesuit University. It's a coming together of all kinds of minds, and it basically has listening tours where students go down. N nobody's the outsiders are learning about what life is like. And I hope that, that I'll be involved in that a little bit going forward. But, but just as importantly, I didn't even intend to talk about Appalachia today, but just as importantly, I've spent now four months reporting on coal miners uh, in Appalachia. And what I realized as soon as, before I started doing that work is what has happened since the election for me is mostly what my work has been about, and, and this, this work I'm going to talk about, the Syria work really bridges both of them, but usually what I'm doing is going, going somewhere to bring back a hard and complicated and usually pretty ugly truth and writing about that to try to bring some light to it and hopefully some motion around the issue. I mean, last time when I came here before I was a fellow, I was talking about the death of Christianity in the Middle East and embattled Christ, Christian communities. How do you even say that in these days? talk about that kind of thing. Um, but what I realize now after the election is it's not, for me, it's not going and bringing stories back. It's teaching people, teaching right now readers of The New Yorker to listen to they're the ones who don't know. It's not like, look at this group of people here in Appalachia. We need to understand them a little bit better. It's, it's like, oh, I'm sorry, uh, you know, liberal elite, you've missed an entire piece of education. And we need to, to deepen our understanding. So to sit with minors and their wives who say, listen, you know, w with a four-year-old wearing a, um, you know, look at the power of a t girl t-shirt, right, and saying, look, we don't want to repeal Roe v. Wade. We don't want Trump to go too far. We do want 10 years of mining. We have school loans. We have car loans. The sophistication of perspectives and voices uh, is something that has been incredibly humbling to me. So. I was just telling Dean Hampton and Luann that today that Scott Pruitt is in the, happens to be at this coal mine where I've spent months now, right? <laughs> today he's there, and the person who I'm writing about is this fiery 30-year-old. Um, she's a absolute second rights amendment, started shooting guns when she was nine. She's an ardent environmentalist who didn't hear the word environmentalist till she was about 30. Um, you know, she's just a remarkable mix of people. And as she says, you know, rural America is not a monolith. So, uh, so that work, which I didn't intend to be doing this year, feels super grounded. I was just sitting with Professor Clooney upstairs and I thought I would share this line with you because it's just amazing. Um, so it's a line from uh, the from the Rig Veda, from the the 10th hymn of the Rig, Rig Veda that says, let the purpose of my mind come true. Let the purpose of my mind come true. And I thought, okay, I can really use that to clean up some of what it really means to be a channel. How do I really be a channel for this work? So that brings us to this work. I'm going to look at the time. Okay. So... 
The real heart of what's happening this spring and into the summer, because it's taking a while, is this work on Syrian activists and artists, poets, writers who have left Syria since the, since the revolution began. Some are still there, which I've realized is an important group to still cover. Um, so this, I'm calling this my virtual country. This is going to be, uh, this is my Burgoon project, really, um, as a fellow this year. And it's going to run on the New Yorker's website because it's going to be interactive. So let's take a look at it. Okay. So I thought what I would do is just share three or four of these artists today and tell you a little bit about, so 2011, we're looking at people who have stayed or left since 2011. This, this is an artist. This is a guy known as Sirius Banksy. And he's known as Sirius Banksy because he paints murals. Um, but he doesn't just paint murals. He paints them at, um, he paints them at night because during the day he's a soldier and he, when he's painting them, he doesn't want to be hit by snipers. So you can see one over there, right? Um, so let me tell you a little bit about him. Um, okay, so he was born in 1994. He was a student and he participated. Most of the artists are, again, that's been a hugely, so these 100 artists exist on a spreadsheet, okay, which means they want to know who else is on that spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. And most, the, we've hit all kinds of, because I'm working with an Arabic translator, we've hit all kinds of issues we didn't anticipate. First of all, of course, who else is on this list? Do you have anybody pro the Assad regime on this list? Because I don't want to be on a list with the Assad regime. Then another issue is, who else is on this list? Artists who were established before the revolution, because there's a lot of crap art out there now. And I, my work was collected in the Victorian Albert before the revolution, which is how I know I'm a real artist. What about these others? Mm -hmm. So there's all this, or I don't want to be called a Syrian. I want to be called an artist. I am an artist. I'm not part of a group that suddenly emerged riding a boat over the Mediterranean. Really interesting questions. So, okay. So, so Abu Malak al-Shami al is his name. Um, he was born in 1994. Uh, he, be, he participated from the beginning of the revolution uh, in peaceful demonstrations, and then he joined the FSA, the Free Syrian Army. So that's how he's a soldier today. He's, <coughs> he's interested. Here's his, this is, um, this is after the latest chemical attacks. This is a sketch for a mural that he's working on now, uh, which, I love this because it's just so, it's, how do you have people, and I'm going to read a little bit about another artist talking about, how do you have people look at horror, right? How, people don't look at horror. We have enough photographs of horror. How do you, how do you engage, how does art allow for people to come to a deeper understanding of a war than journalism or journalistic photography ever could? So. All right, so just in his own words, he says, I work in all aspects of our revolution. I carry a weapon and fight beside my friends, and even now I'm still training and developing my fighting skills to be ready for any combat. But at night, a friend of his was killed in the war in the beginning, and so what he does is he basically scavenges art supplies from bomb buildings, and he paints on ruins every night. Right? He creates these huge murals at great personal risk. He hasn't left the country. That is really remarkable as well. Many of the artists have fled, um, but he remains behind. 
really documenting what's going on and becoming friends with other artists and trying to expose the work not just on the building itself but through social media because I'm calling this this project my virtual country because for most of these artists there's no going back to Syria ever especially now most of them I wonder if it's fair to say most probably many no most probably thought Assad was going to go Right? They thought Assad was going to go. And now we don't know. In the past week, things have changed so greatly. Uh, but for, for, the pat, for most of this fall and into the spring, um, people have thought that Assad was not going to go. So they've been making new lives in the places they are. And those issues themselves are really interesting. So the project will be, this is Diala Bresley. She is really, she is my favorite. <laughs> That's the objective journalism to it. Um, she is friends with um, Abu Malik al-Shami, with Syrian Banksy, and she got to know him because he saw, she's a, she is a cartoonist. She used to draw, and she, her work still appears in Zaytun and Zaytuna, which is a children's magazine inside of Syria. So she drew pictures for children before the revolution began. Um, and then when the revolution began, she had to leave. She was driving uh, medical supplies to hidden hospitals because as, as I know we all know here, one of the most insidious practices of both Assad and the Russians has, and the Iranians, but to a lesser degree, has been to target hospitals, right? Explicitly target hospitals to drive, if you target the bakery and the hospital in a town, you drive the population out of that area and you get to claim the population. And so what's happened, and this happens especially before we have new prospective peace deals, is that Assad goes on a rampage because he wants to have claimed as much territory as possible before the lines of a negotiated peace ever happen, right? So it's not oh, he's just bombing hospitals. It's a part of a targeted, like we'd seen elsewhere over time, uh, rape is a crime of war, not just because it's horrible to rape people, because it's a form of terror. If you think your daughter or your mother is going to be raped, you're going to leave that village, right? So it's a way to claim territory. So Diala here, we see her painting on, she's painting on paper there. She paints images, uh, I was just talking to her about this yesterday, she paints all kinds of images that children can understand, but also that we, uh, because this doubleness of audience, most of these artists are committed to speaking to Syrians and also speaking to people who know nothing about Syria. So when I asked her about this image last night, I said, did you draw that? Because she draws, she paints and draws on the side of refugee tents. Right? That's where she puts her work, uh, mostly in Turkey, uh, but also in Lebanon. And I said, it, was this on the side of a tent? She said, no, I would never take sadness into a camp. I only paint happy things in the camps. So I just thought that was a remarkable commentary. Um, here, this would be one of those, you know, here kids are, kids are responsible for building the Syrian flag, and you have gentler images. You have gentler images of possible destruction, possible construction at the top. But again, these are gen and smiles, right? And she uh, just, she said, this, I just thought I would read this to you guys. Some people look at the news and they feel like, oh my God, we can't do anything anymore. And this is why I prefer to put some hope into the illustrations, facing tragedy in a different way. People don't like to see dead people or explosions. They can't see it anymore. Even me, I can't see it anymore. Art is a better solution. You can put philosophy in painting. So just amazing.
Okay, now we're working, we're moving on to Muzaffar Salman and his wife, Rana Zaid. Um, so Muzaffar is a photographer and his wife, Rana, is a poet. Um, so I'm going to read you a little bit of her work, and this is four of a hundred. So what the project involves is building this database. Um, uh, and so when you click on the site, you will see, you'll see patterns of migration. And you'll see, so you'll see Syrians who have gone, which is really interesting generationally. Generationally, most of the young, not surprisingly, because they're not as established, um, are in Germany. They they went they they went over the Mediterranean and they got themselves to Germany. So there's a massive booming uh, Syrian art culture center uh, in Berlin. That's a lot of the younger. The most established older artists who were anti-Assad from the beginning ended up in Paris, most of in Paris and in France in generally, because uh, they were already anti-regime. They knew they were at risk. And the French embassy in Lebanon gave a bunch of artist visas. They, they made it, actually, I was talking to Muzaffar. Who, he, he and his wife live in Rouen now. And he was saying the difference with the way that the French dealt with the influx of, of refugees in Beirut, right, where the, the refugees threatened to overwhelm the population of the country, right? These are complicated issues. But in most embassies, you cannot go into the American embassy as a refugee and have any kind of access to the embassy. All your, all your first point of contact has to be the UN, right? So when we see any uh, possibly not very informed person talking about the need for extreme vetting, that the absurdity of that is that the way that, first of all, nobody wants to come to America anyway. It's a big pain in the ass and it's expensive, right? But even to appear in an American embassy, you've already gone through five separate layers of vetting at the UN. And the UN would never recommend somebody to the United States if they weren't pretty sure they were clean because the UN wants a success rate, right? So the difference with the French in Lebanon is that they made visas, of, they made interviews available to artists and to journalists. So Muzaffar and his wife were able to get one of these interviews, which just landed them in France. They don't speak French. Uh, Rana is studying French right now. Muzaffar's story is amazing. So he worked for the Associated Press. Um, his background, he was a pre presidential photographer for Assad. Um, and he then he went to work for the Associated Press, which was run by a pro-regime, you know, apparatchik, as all such agencies would be. And from the beginning of the re revolution, he started to photograph the revolution. He ended up um, being, you know, tried. He, he went through a seven-month trial, not really in absentia. He didn't have to show up in the courtroom every day, but whether or not his work had been subversive. Um, the head of the Associated Press in Syria was very much against him, but all the rest of the Associated Press in the US and elsewhere was pro uh, getting Muzaffar off. So he got off. Um, he went to work for Reuters. He worked for something like five days for Reuters, and he got a letter saying, he's an Alawite, by the way. Um, so he, he comes from one of the minority sects. He comes from Assad's sect, uh, which is, and sowing fear among the Alawi is a way in which Assad shores up his control, which I, I'm not going to talk about today. It's a little beyond the scope of today, but we could talk about it more in questions. Um, so, okay, so Muzaffar got off. He gets this plum job with Reuters. Two days 
five assignments in, two days after he's off, he gets a letter saying, you better report for military duty, right? Which is a, is a more than a threat, right? I mean, it's almost certain death. So he fled the country um, and he ended up he ended up all over the place. He ended up for a while in Turkey, then he ended up in Lebanon, and then he went back. He went back to Syria and he worked for another year under extreme threat. I said to him, I said, well, did you work anonymously? He said, no, I decided, and many of these artists at extreme personal risks have continued to use their names in and out of the country because they said, the, and some incredible artists also work collectively and anonymously. There's an amazing film group I'm not going to talk about today called Abu Nadara, which both the regime and the resistance have essentially used saying, look how great these guys are. Um, but he decided no matter what the risk, he was going to work under his own name because, and what the regime did, since he had been a pres presidential photographer, is say that his pictures are fabricated. That's their, their line, much like the chemical attacks. Didn't ever happen. I love this one. You guys see the cat? <laughs> so he considers himself, this is a line that's super interesting to me, but he considers himself more of an artist than a journalist, right? He became a journalist because he, he was first an artist. He won, a, you know, something, uh, he won this competition to go to Rome, um, and he went to Rome and <coughs> was, got this great prize for his photography and then came back and got a job working for the president, essentially, and that's how he got his start. This is his wife, Rana, and this is Rouen. So I thought this would be a good place to read a little bit of her work. She is amazing. Now, part of the real challenge here for me is translation. And I, translation, so I did translate a bunch of these Afghan women's poetry without speaking Pashto, which is in itself a dubious enterprise. <laughs> but I worked with a series of translators, and they're old, the poems are only nine words long, and they're folk poems. So. The idea of language within them is there's a looser relationship. Um, with better, with poets who are explicitly intending the words they choose in a particular order by the hundreds, that's harder. So Rana is a very, very good poet. I don't think this translation is the best it could be, but I'm going to read it to you, okay? So this is called A Sniper, okay? God, you and I are two sparrows and a sniper. The sniper remembers nothing of his past. His swiftness makes him forget his delight. His pocket is heavy with the pain of bullets. His fingers wait, his finger waits to leave after each shooting. Will I live to see leaves of grapes budding over me? If I did not die, who would I be? A ballet dancer who threw her heart into the well like an iron bowl. Then she scooped it out, fissured, then the monster pulled her into the well, and she too became a monster. Did the sniper forget the blood visible on my shoulder and the softness in the palm of a man who meditates the sea in his other palm? God, you and I are two sparrows and a sniper who does not smell of killing, who has his dark basement and his slow heart beating, and we bear the holes of ancient trees. It's better out loud, <laughs> really. So, this is Rana. This is what she's doing now. She's, she's translated a couple of books into Danish because a couple of Danish um, essentially activists have really uh, sort of taken her work up. So 
but she's young. I mean, that's another line of choosing who's going to be involved in this map. Like, are you going to go for Adonis? You know, are you going to go for the best known Syrian poets? Not, that's not what we're doing. We're going for a younger generation, a less known generation. And, and the way that, that we're choosing that data is you have to have been in the country when the revolution began. So if you're somewhere else and you are an amazing Syrian who's grown up uh, in another world, that's not where you fall. So, okay. Okay, this is, this is a remarkable man uh, who, who's responsible for this banner. Uh, he's, he's a humorist. I don't think he's gonna be on this uh, map in the end, but I wanted to share this with you. He, he basically uses satire and has, his name is Ryan Ferris, and he has a virtual protest every Friday. So in the way, and as the Syrian revolution began, people came out you know, by the hundreds of thousands on Fridays to protest the regime. And for the most part, that's died. For the most part, the regime has won. But in this little liberated town of Kafrenbel, which is in Idlib, and they suffer barrel bombs every day, um, they have this protest, they come out, this is, Ride's very funny when you talk to him about who comes out, because he's like, usually it's like, are homeless and a crazy man, right? <laughs> but it doesn't matter to them who's standing there. The whole point is that the, oops, sorry, this gets uploaded on Facebook, um, and it becomes a virtual protest. So it's their virtual Friday protest. And Riot is a hub of these artists. So the cartoonist, uh, satire, cartoons, um, forms of, of, we might say, popular art. Uh, rap, rap has become a huge tool uh, of the revolution. So that's just the very beginning. That's just a taste of some who some of these characters are gonna be. So the final form will be that map showing migration to France, to Berlin, to the Emirates. Some of the super established or super talented artists um, are belong to a gallery called the I Am Gallery that helps them. It's incredibly difficult to live in, to get, basically to get a visa to almost any Arab country as a Syrian refugee, especially the Emirates. Uh, so, but there are some artists' visas that come if you're selling, if you're making a lot of money as an artist, there are some exceptions. So um, that is that. That gives you guys a sense of the overview. Okay, so what I thought I would do now, I wanna show you this. Where is, I'm looking for, I hope this didn't get, oh yeah, okay. I can see what, this is a little boy. You're not, this is not the little boy. This, you can see the hashtag here. This is Arabs Got Talent. Um, so I was gonna, I wonder, I think it's gonna be too complicated to show you guys now. There's a five-year-old who just made it pre the semifinals named Allah, Allah Jerkis, his son Yaman Jerkis, who the, I really want this map to represent high-low culture, not just you know people who are showing their work in the best galleries in Dubai. And so this five-year-old, the family, the, they come from a singing family uh, in Syria, and they are in Lebanon now. And one of the really interesting realities, so as we know, right, in the countries surrounding Syria, it's almost impossible for refugees to get jobs. Usually it's illegal, uh, both in Turkey, in, in Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan, because you can't, there's enough, there are really good reasons for that. There, there are enough local people who can't get the jobs already, and then to bring in million, one to two million refugees, you can, there, so 
I have at first, I've come to learn that a little bit about what that's like. But artists are especially challenged because most people find jobs underground. Like you work construction underground, you work the same kind of things that we have undocumented people doing in this country, you do in other countries. But if you're an artist and you're a singer, good luck with that. You know, you have to have people watching you to sing. So Allah, Yaman's father, um, he... He sings in Lebanese restaurants, essentially, and he's paid $50 uh, for what is usually a $500 gig, and he talks about what it's like to be afraid as you're singing ballads that the security officials, the Lebanese security, is going to come through the door anytime. Um, and, and what would happen is he'd be sent back to Syria. So he and his family have pinned their hopes on this five-year-old who... This was supposed to be a picture of Yaman wearing a miniature white tuxedo, which is pretty much, you know, with his little hair slicked back. And he, the, the Allah says, and I really, it's again one of those humbling moments, you know, you are, Yaman, sure, I mean, TV, whatever, but he will get a better education. The Lebanese will give us, you know, residence. Like, they've pinned their hopes on this little boy. And very sadly, he lost. He didn't make it into the semifinal rounds um, last week. So I, I still am going to bring the story forward because I just think it's an amazing story. Um, I don't know how my New Yorker editor is going to feel about going too much into his story, but I'm going to be talking about him a lot. So, okay, so that is this map. And I think what I'll do is read you guys some poems, because that is, that is what else I've been doing quietly this year. Yeah, and then I'm going to open it up to some questions. Does that sound good? It's a lot of, yeah, I, that's a lot of context, but I think it's fine. Okay, so I'm just going to read about eight minutes of poetry. You guys are out of here at two, and I take no offense to anybody who's got to get up and go. Just go. Okay. Okay. All right. This one is called Builders. Returning to the page after an absence is returning to a house, not abandoned or even neglected so much as put out of mind, as the path to the house has been arduous and rather than duty, houses prefer to be entered in joy. This house delights in sheltering the grateful who stroke its simple walls in awe and marvel at how one wooden board is planed and set next to the next at the patience of the makers who neither attempted to build this house in one day nor walked away when the awkward angles didn't achieve their intended degree. No, these makers practiced the wisdom of recalibration without which there'd be no house, only a heap of mangled frustrations and somewhere else, a forest of stumps. Okay, this poem is called Goodbye Omar and it is a farewell to Mullah Omar, uh, the leader of the Taliban. And it begins with one of those, uh, it begins with one of those landais, those Afghan poems I translated that women have been singing for years. So there's a lot of, if we were sitting at the Council on Foreign Relations and everybody was in a tie, two, maybe four years ago, well, is Mullah Omar alive? Is Mullah Omar dead? The women of Afghanistan have been singing about the fact that well, Mullah Omar is dead for a good long time, okay? <laughs> So their poem goes, Wormwood grows on the one-eyed mullah's grave. Wormwood grows on the one-eyed mullah's grave. The Talib boys fight blindly on, believing he's alive. Okay. Charlie says, when Afghan men are gathered, the number of eyes is always odd. 
a generation of outdated wounds. No longer cool or relevant, the Taliban can't muster the fear they used to. The duffers stalk the graveyard and the chalk, fingered, finger henned beers, beards. They cultivate cartoon. Once a deaf mute pressed her thumb to chin to warn me they were coming. The universal symbol, fear the beard. There's ancient precedent for their love of the four flattened image. In medieval painting, failure's a form of prayer. To render perspective less deftly than perspective allows indicates humility. The bowed head knows its flaws. The land belongs to Isis now. No one settles for an eye. How quaint, how Deuteronomy. The depiction that matters is the infliction of suffering on others. Where are your scars? Where are your scars now? Where are your scars now, Wonder Boys? Okay. So in a less intimate setting, I probably wouldn't say anything about these I poems, but <clears throat> they are, they're, a bunch of these poems are about a, a, a subject, not the poet, not me, named I. Okay, so I'm going to read a couple of those. Okay, this is called First Person One. I lived a life more verb than subject, less bound to object than others seemed. Possession meant one key to one room I could lock and leave as long as need be. I could lose. This is First Person Three. Before I died, she came to me saying she'd stumbled on the universe's secret, stubbed her toe so many times on a rock in the road, the rock rolled out of its bed shouting, woman, is it never enough? I peered at the rock, studied its face, maybe its belly. Did it have a tiny mouth where all the rigid principles that rule the galaxy dissolve? No way to tell. The quarks had pulled themselves together once again. In Revelation, when the white stone deigns to speak, it offers a new name. None came, nothing more than one barked frustration. Had the rock spoken, or was her bothered brain more broken than she'd feared? Regardless, I straightened up. Okay. This one is, <clears throat> of course I didn't realize this when I wrote it, but then I was reading about Maundy Thursday and I think the end will, you will, there perhaps echoes of a, of a someone at the end, okay? It's called Love Poem for a Mature Audience. Does it begin to fall away with the death of small courtesies, love? Tugs push barges up and down the dead river. A train's gaunt whistle ghosts the shore. The working world's not working anymore broke so long, it isn't the obsolete bridges that keep us apart, it's the lack of inner infrastructure. We're born soft-boned, our endocrines disrupted. We stand for nothing, our spans of attention spliced to a blip. Little cars across the river, shuttling urgently toward a day that doesn't matter. To love one another might be the fierce command the river issued if we still listen to rivers or if they deign to speak. Okay, a couple more. 
so much fun to read you guys poetry. <laughs> but done it in a while. Okay, this poem is called Rats. Better to wander blindly into this epoch than study the horizon for archaic auguries. Auguries we mis misunderstood as archaic now returning. It's rarely war that topples worlds. It's the long march of peoples over brittle crust, trading a horrible future for an uncertain fate. Earth, poisoned by bodies, can't bear anymore, cures itself by pestilence, by rats on grain ships out of Egypt, sailing for a starved empire. Nowadays, we export rats in four-wheel wheel wells, bound from Tennessee to Turkey to be resold on battlefields. Did you hear about the plumber in Texas, forced to shut his shop after his truck turned up on TV, property of ISIS? Rats in the wheel wells, always rats, and sickness and the weakness building walls implies, and skies, now empty of starlings, wheel themselves. read you three more. This is the next of those first person poems. I wishes, I wishes she were shrewd. Of all the bladed instruments in her mind's leather satchel, the scalpel sharp enough to satisfy her most craven wants is either dull or missing. Her darker calculations remain inaccurate, off the mark, prone to ignoble exposure unlike those cloistered monks who picked their teeth and farted while illuminating manuscripts behind the high-walled kingdom of the Ostrogoths. The ruling class no longer literate, ogled pictures. Some good can come of ugliness. Okay. And this is the last of those first-person poems. I hope. Oh, I had your number, Gaio. Did she ever? This solitary discerner of natures, this know-it-all stuffed with straw wisdom. By the time I recognized her penchant for getting things wrong, she'd near enough got herself killed more times than she knew. Others killed too. Though it wasn't the death scrapes that broke through delusion. No, the daily slog to deconstruct every good and simple thing proved poison. Her dry little heart gave out with a flutter and kick. Here is the last poem. I read this. So this year, I mean, just in terms of community, I have had, I come and go from New York, and I get to come and go around events, and there's this wonderful new poetry group that, here. And, you know, I will go to the English department and go sit in on these remarkable professors, but there's a, a liveness as somebody who gets to just kind of sneak around the university and peer into other worlds with a discerning eye, I just have to say that both the political acumen here, the awakeness, the warmth, um, especially around the arts is really pretty unparalleled. So, okay, River of Shoes. Uh, this, I read this one at the poetry gathering. What can I offer the child at the border? A river of shoes her coat stitched with coins, her father murdered for his teeth, her mother stern with fear, sewing her daughter's future into a hem. 
alone but for a brother who shoves her ahead through the barbed wire fence, knowing she's safer without him. A dark truth she cannot, not sh she cannot yet share, being too young for the ways of men. Nothing is what I can offer. The child died years ago. Except I can practice a finer caliber of kindness to the stranger, rather than wield this harriedness, this burden of self. Let humility mean less of me, blinding myself to the suffering of others in order to remember the tender wisdom sprung from pain. Thank you. Okay, so I'm happy to stay here as long as you have questions, but there are seven minutes until two o'clock. So if anyone wants to ask anything, I'm more than happy to talk about anything. No questions? Yes. Yeah. Can I ask what the, um, the virtual country, which will be on yeah. the Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so what's the, um, um, what's the plan? For that, I mean, is it something that's going to be added to? Um Probably. So it, that's a really good question. So originally, I was thinking, well, what we could do is we could start a database. <laughs> I mean, the definition of who is an artist is hotly contested anywhere, uh, and it's that's been one. I hadn't really foreseen that becoming such an issue. And my personal, I'm, I tend to be more interested in the artists who are also activists right, who are, are speaking out against the war in some capacity. But, but I've tried to wean that out a little bit to make sure that we're casting a wider net. So what will happen with that, that will go up early this summer. Um, so this is all, it can totally be taped, but this is just off the record. I, I won't use that term. What we should, Chatham House rules. So it's a little, little out of school that I'm talking about it before it happens. But it will go up on the web this summer, um, and you will be able to follow so you'll see this map. I don't know that we're going to use names on that map, or and I'd be interested in people's feedback. So in one way, I think we've everybody who's spoken to us is comfortable with their name being used. That's one of the precursors for speaking to us, right? I don't want anybody who has security concerns and they, they're ambivalent about appearing on this. That said, so in a way, I want to give them their due by including their names. Visually, I don't know. the the. The, the map maker has some ideas about, well, should it just be a stream of color? Like, this is, how, this is how many people went to Europe. This is where people ended up. So that's an outstanding question. Probably won't be able to be added to um, because it will be a static piece of journalism. And then out of that 100, there will be five profile subjects. So I will be able to write about five of these people in some detail, and you will be able to follow their route interactively. The way that I came up with this idea is some years ago, I was sitting in Turkey in a tea house that had been belonged to an Armenian with this incredible doctor who had just survived a siege in the Yarmouk refugee camp. He'd been working with Palestinians for years. You know, he'd nearly starved to death. He'd lost 30 pounds, um, but he was a classically trained oud player. So he had written these wonderful, hilarious songs to ISIS being like, oh, ISIS, I'm not a, an infidel. Hunger is the infidel. Funny and good. So it was out of that that I thought, well, everybody, we have such, people have so many identities. And how are we going to talk about this war 
six years on and pay any attention. Not, unfortunately, images of horror have a limited, we can't. So he, how about five stories of unusual, smart, dynamic, for, I was at an event, this is part of how it came to be too, there's a guy, uh, there's a group called Rockets Being Silently Slaughtered. And these are young, like the oldest one of them is like 29 maybe. So they're, you know, they're wearing their flat-brimmed Yankees hats with the stickers still on, right? And these guys took on ISIS through social media in their town of Raqqa. And they are amazing. And they just basically, they taunted ISIS so badly that they became a force to be reckoned with. And several of them have been killed, out, even outside of the country. Um, but it was... I, as I was watching Abdulaziz Al-Khamsa, who is the sort of spokesperson of the group, talk to these new school kids, I thought, well, how can we get these kids to understand, like, what would happen if somebody blew up the new school tomorrow? Where, where would you go? What would you do? And as a journalist, I am completely implicated in the narratives of the wretched. You know, um, that is uh, what I have used to try to create empathy around Syria and other issues. Oh, look how much suffering this family has endured. What other ways are there to tell that story? So really, the thinking behind it, like the, the content is secondary to uh, trying to tell a story in a new way. But it will, I mean, who knows? I mean, it's likely to change these five young artists' lives. And that's a lot of responsibility, you know, because they're going to get this exposure. You know, that's just how it works. So it has a lot of ethical questions to it, but it will live on the New Yorker website in perpetuity, and it is interactive, so you can follow the, those five stories. And then there'll be tons of angry comments being like, so-and-so is not an artist, and why didn't you put me? So... I, I assume you're familiar with the book Syria Speaks. Yep. Yeah, so what's the relationship? So Syria Speaks is a, is a collection of artists who are uh, donating their work essentially in, in, in this book form who are Syrian themselves to raise money for, for the resistance. And it was published, I think, a year and a half ago. Yep. So what's the... Can you talk about the dynamic about that book and this effort and other kind of... Sure. Sure, there are, I mean, there are so many artist efforts underneath, I mean, underway. There's Syria Speaks, there's Syria Untold, um, there's Collective Memory, which is a remarkable Arabic language, um, basically journal that has the work of artists every day. Um, then there's a guy who I'm talking to later today who's in Berlin who is creating, is doing something, like a whole cultural database, right, uh, with the idea of preserving what it means to be Syrian. Because a lot of, you know, I mean, the level, how do we tell sophisticated stories about suffering? But, I mean, well, first of all, have sophisticated people tell their own stories. That's one way to do it, right? But, you know, I mean, when you talk to Syrian artists, especially some of the classically trained musicians, you know, the practice, the forms they're practicing have been taught for thousands of years, right? So certainly for Allah Jerkis, although he's singing in a Lebanese restaurant um, and his, he's trying to get his kid on Arab's Got Talent, you know, he's been classically trained for 30 years in essentially a form of ballad singing that reminds me most closely of Ovid, right? So, so 
all, I, I think lots of people are doing different things is the short answer. The Goethe Institute is doing incredible work for young Syrian artists. Um, but again, like every other embattled community, there are deep fractures, you know, right? So I'm sure I'm going to get pushback, but you don't even speak Arabic. Why, why did you pick these people? That young woman is, you know, who knows who she is, and I am in the Victorian Albert. Or that guy in the Victorian Albert is a collaborator, and why would he still be in Aleppo, you know? So I just don't care. That's sort of the bottom line. Anything else? David. So a couple of lines that we read stood out to me. Yeah. I mean, I remember them. One was uh, about uh, goodness coming from ugliness. Yeah. And the other one was just wisdom coming from pain. Yeah. And um, so it made me want to ask you about, you know, the source of your motivation. What motivates you and, and how much of what you do comes out of your Christian experience, your Christian background. Yeah. How alive is that in all of this? Uh, in ways we may not necessarily want to say, well, that's what I'm doing, but how present is it in your work? Um, so, okay, so I'm sociologically a Christian. <laughs> so I was raised as the daughter of an Episcopal priest um, at a time, can I still say the Episcopal church is pretty liberal can we say that uh, outline groups may not be but um but you know <coughs> crop hunger walk and that kind of situation um and my dad was a big pr pr practitioner of yoga you know so there was a lot of seeking going on a whole lot of seeking going on <laughs> um and so i definitely was raised within a christian i think the, my language, you know, I learned to read standing in a church. You know, the language of the Bible was just because that was my playground more than anything else. So I think with the poetry, I, and I don't mean to compare myself to anybody like Emily Dickinson, but the sort of the language itself, the, the meter itself is heavily encoded in ways that, that are associated with dominant Christian culture, for sure. Um, you know, my dad came up a couple of weeks ago while you guys were away, and, and we went to Evensong uh, at the monastery, of Saint, Society of St. John the Evangelist, where since I've been 15, I've stayed on and off with those monks, you know, um, and often leaving the monks for my friends' houses in Cambridge, being like, that's it, I can't do any more stuff in the cell. and. So I have, I'd say, a very a lot, I don't know. The truth is that I don't know in the way that you would give lectures and you wouldn't know. I can hear the, I mean, it's no accident that I'm writing about, you know, loving one another without understanding where that language comes from and then being like, I should probably know what Maundy means. Let me go see what's happening tomorrow. <laughs> and, you know, calling the monks last night being like, what you got on tonight? I need some ashes. And then they're like, oh, we have tenebrae at 7.30. I'm like, I got a dinner. You know, so I don't know if it's playful, it's sort of liminal, divine, divine naughtiness. Um, what really informs my work is the idea of being of service and being a channel. And that, that just becomes clearer and clearer. And what also becomes clearer are the things that stand in the way of that. And that can be a certain kind of ambition, um, a kind of worldliness that really can trip me up.
So that's the idolatrous stuff. So how can I spend this year rooting myself more deeply in texts, particularly the Vedas, which are interesting to me, but I don't know much about them, um, because the language of Christianity, Christianity as I know it, going to Evensong with my dad is for my dad. I don't get a lot of sucker there. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. That's kind of where I am today, okay? Last question, yeah. You talked about the meter of the language. So I was wondering, of all the work that you've done in translation, yeah. how that's affected your poetry. Do you find, you know, style, meter, other things um, now playing in or affecting, or, or not? So the really the only work of translation I've done is the the these oh, Afghan yeah. two. Yeah, and they are twenty-two syllables um, long. These little poems. They're. And this is how partly I came to grow more interested in the Vedas. The, they're akin to, these poems are akin to the slokas, to these, oh, yeah. The, yeah. And the thinking on where they came from, they're thousands of years old, is that they came with Indo-Aryan caravans, um, you know, thousands of years ago. So Afghanistan, India, Pakistan, throughout, and, and they took different forms. So in terms of meter, the content of them is fierce. And I have been up here reading them before, but but one of my favorites is, um, you know, let's see, which when sisters sit together, they're always praising their brothers. When sisters sit together, they're always praising their brothers. When brothers sit together, they're selling their sisters to others. So they take on, that's one of the more innocent ones, they take on a lot of sex and a lot of, um, I think the content of them and the ferocity of them has given me more access like I've moved on the, the, the spectrum of like, you know, Princeton, blah, blah, to like Williger. Yeah. These, uh, my poems are headed toward Williger. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that makes sense? Yeah. Okay. Well, and, then, and, then, and then style and the other is also going to. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I'm not doggerel, hopefully, yeah. uh, <laughs> but definitely, definitely the earthier, the yeah. more sung, the, the in, intonation, um, the idea. Again, dating back to working with David, but the idea of ceremonial space being created through ritual and ritual language and song and how do we invoke the divine, um, that kind of thing. That's those small, you know, <laughs> let's go get a turkey sandwich kind of stuff. <laughs> but being here this year has allowed me, I don't do so well along one path because my brain doesn't work that way. So as you probably gathered, that's a lot. Of, so I am better in Appalachia and working with Syrian artists than I am just on one. Ooh, and I think probably I write better poems when that's going on than I'm sat in woods somewhere. I don't know. Um, but this year has been a remarkable, life-giving opportunity that has allowed me to kind of return to some of those roots, uh, intellectually and spiritually, and I hope clean up some of the goop that can be problematic, but that remains to be seen. Okay? So, thank you guys.